Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> we got a couple of announcements for you guys here before we get started this morning. Um, so we have a family discipleship cohort meeting, uh, and, uh, like a meet and greet uh, with Kristen right after the service for those of you that have uh, expressed an interest in that. Uh, we've actually had kind of overwhelming interest in that. I think we were anticipating like seven to ten you know, individuals or families, and we've got like 25, I think, signed up right now. So there's going to be a meet and greet right after this service in the children's check-in room at 1130, okay? So, um, so after the service, uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm done by 1130, and, uh, and, and yeah, you guys can make your way to the children's check-in room. Um, we also have community groups launching next Sunday, uh, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, community groups are basically, if you're, if you're new here, they're small groups, little small expressions of our church that meet uh, here at the church or in each other's homes throughout the week and uh, at various times and places. And it's just a, a chance for us to, um, to have a smaller you know, family uh, within the context of the body uh, that we can pray for each other, we can uh, be in the Word together and just live life together. And so that begins this next Sunday. It's a rhythm that we, we have where we're, we're on and then we take breaks and we come back and we're on again. Well, we begin next Sunday. And uh, if you're not in a community group, if you're not in a community group right now uh, and would like to participate and be part of a group, uh, you can come talk to me or you can uh, connect with someone at the Connect table um, after the service and they can, uh, you can express your interest in that. Um, and you can also get on our app, and in our app, there is a place where you can express an interest in uh, being part of a community group. So I'd encourage you to do that if you uh, are not in a group and, and would like to do so. And then the last announcement is we have our uh, Women's Discipleship Monday uh, meeting that is taking place on January 17th. So that's this next Monday, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, next Monday, uh, the 17th. It will be here at 7.30 p.m., and it will go till about 9 p.m., so 7.30 p.m. Uh, to 9 p.m. So that will be uh, the Women's Discipleship Meeting. So those are uh, our announcements uh, for the week. Um, we are beginning a new sermon series here today, uh, looking at Jesus and the least. Can we go ahead and get the, the graphic up uh, on screen? So Jesus and the least, gospel stories of the needy. Um, and our text here for this morning uh, is going to be, uh, I, or I'm sorry, Luke, Luke 4, 16 through 21. Luke 4, 16 through 21. And if you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word. Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which we just read, Isaiah 61. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, 
And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, So as I mentioned, we're beginning a new series today, Jesus and the Least. And uh, we're going to be in the Gospels for about the next eight weeks, and this is a rhythm that we want to do on a yearly basis moving forward. Uh, At the beginning of every year, we want to spend some time in the Gospels, looking at the life of Jesus. And, And then in this year, in 2022, as we dive into this new rhythm, um, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospels and Jesus and putting it through this grid of how Jesus treated the least of these, how Jesus treated the marginalized. And I think we have to start here for a couple of reasons. One, just for us, this makes a lot of sense for us as a church. We are in a place, in a town, where there are a lot of marginalized individuals. This is Middletown. There's a lot of poverty There's a lot of just marginalized individuals among us. And so this makes a lot of sense for us to start here as a church. But moreover, I think we have to start here because Jesus spent an overwhelming amount of his time spending time with the social outcasts, with the marginalized, with the sick, with the poor, with the least of these. Jesus himself was born into poverty, his parents being Joseph and Mary. And as, as we'll get, and we'll get into this more, but this idea of poverty is where Jesus begins and ends his ministry. The, the text that we just read in Luke 4 is, is Jesus's inaugural moment. This is before he has selected any of his disciples, uh, before he has really formally begun his ministry. And the first thing that he does is he shows up and he reads from Isaiah 61 and says, this is, I am now coming and I'm beginning, beginning my ministry, and my ministry is good news to the poor. So he begins his ministry that way. And then in Matthew 25, the last sermon that Jesus ever preaches before he's crucified is one where he says, in so much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And in the way that you haven't done it to the least of these, you haven't done it to me. So Jesus bookshelves his entire ministry in this discussion about the poor. So it makes a lot of sense for us to begin here. Um, There's something about the nature of God that cares for those who suffer and those who have great need. This topic of poverty is mentioned in the Scriptures more than 2,000 times. It's a lot of airtime. And the only time that Jesus ever ever in his entire ministry, gets violently angry when he's flipping tables and throwing people out of the synagogue, chasing them out with a whip even. The only time that Jesus gets violently angry is when it's in relation to the poor. What what, What had happened? The money changers had come into the synagogue. They had monetized everything and they were creating a barrier for the poor. The poor could not get access to God because of what these people were doing in the synagogue. And so Jesus gets violently angry. It's the only time we ever see Jesus get angry in that that kind of violent uh, way. And so today, I want to set up this series by looking at three different kind of extended passages. We're going to be in a lot of Scripture today. 
uh, and, that, and I hope that this scripture kind of sets the foundation for the rest of the series uh, as, as we go through it these next few weeks. So the first uh, passage that I want to look at is Leviticus 25, 8 through 14. It'll be on screen. Leviticus 25, 8 through 14. And it says this, uh, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Dr. Seuss there or something, right? <laughs> On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee or celebration, a year of celebration for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. And in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you made a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. What in the world is this idea of the year of jubilee? So every 50 years, people were released from all debts. Whatever debt you had, you were to be released in this 50th year from any debts that you had. If you had property or real estate that your family had owned and it had been sold off, that was going to be returned back to your family. Now, this is not the only time where God had protections provision for the poor codified into law um, throughout the Old Testament. Codified into their very law was provision for the poor, how they should treat the poor, how they should treat widows, how they should treat immigrants. God was mandating into law protection for the least. And the year of Jubilee was the biggest. I mean, it only came around every 50 years where all your debts were wiped clean. It would be as though 50 years ago, so in 1972, your dad or grandpa maybe got into some financial problems and had to sell off the family farm. Fell in hard times, had to sell off the family farm. Uh, and now that the family farm is gone, your future is in jeopardy as an heir or would have been heir of this land. And so God is making provision for them, meaning that, hey, just because you were born into poverty because your dad or your grandpa had to sell off the family farm, it will be returned back to you after 50 years. It will come back to the family. God is making provision for you so that you and your family would not indefinitely be in a state of poverty. God is making provision. But here's the thing about this year of Jubilee and the erasing of the debts and the returning of property and all of that stuff. It seems outrageous. I mean, that's just crazy. Can you imagine what that would look like in society? It was just, it's just radical generosity that God is mandating. And it was radical and so radical that as far as we know, not one king of Israel ever, none, ever actually... Um, enforced this. Not one. And, and so what God had mandated, his people ignored. And in fact, 
in regards to these mandates for the poor that God had, there were many others that were far less of a requirement than the year of Jubilee. There were other provisions that God had required for the poor, and they didn't, the people of God didn't keep those either. They were disobedient. They ignored what God had mandated. And God cares so much, and this is what, one of the points that we have to understand, God cares so much about the poor that, and, and was so in, in, unhappy with his people in the way in which they ignored the way in which he was telling them to take care of the poor that this would become one of the reasons why God would choose to let his people be punished and disciplined by having outside nations come in and conquer them. And in fact, we see that in Isaiah 51. I'm going to read this to you. It's not going to be on screen. But this is God talking to his people. He says, Day after day, they, my people, seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and have not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. And they say, why have we fasted and have not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? But on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking one another with fists. You cannot fast as you, do, as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting that I have chosen one day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? In other words, is it, is it just this external thing? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice? That word's going to be really, really important. This idea of justice, lock that into your memory. We're going to have a discussion about that later. This idea of justice. To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Fascinating text. God has always been with the poor, had a heart for the poor, and made provision for the poor. And he has taken it very, very, very seriously when his people have disregarded that. Listen, God may well be with those of us who have means. He may well be with us in our, in our beautiful homes. He may well be with us in our manicured lawns. He may well be with us in our nice jobs with benefits and health care. I hope so. I, I think so. But the one thing that we have to agree on, if we're going to 
read the scriptures and be honest about it, is that God is with the poor. God is with the orphan. God is with the widow and the widower. God is with the brokenhearted. God is with the homeless who at this very moment are camped down next to Smith Park around a fire trying to stay warm. God is with the single mom who can't afford to pay rent. God is with the children who go to school and get made fun of for their tattered clothes or shoes. God is with those who have been bankrupted by medical bills. God is with the chronically sick. God is with the elderly who have had age begin to take away their minds and bodies. God is with the blind and the deaf and the disabled. And when we read this text, we discover God is with us when we are with them. If you don't believe that's true, go to Matthew 25. As you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. God ties our relationship to him directly with how we treat the poor. Now let's revisit Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. I want want us to read this text again that uh, Lou read here this morning. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what Jesus was quoting. Because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it's jubilee, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then keeping this text in our minds, Let's take a look now back at Luke 4, and uh, let's go to verse 21 where he talks about today the scriptures were fulfilled. Today the scriptures have been fulfilled. So Jesus reads this text from Isaiah 61 and then says, this idea of jubilee, you've been waiting, you've been waiting for kings to do this. You've been waiting for the wealthy to do this. You've been waiting for someone to do this and nobody has ever done it, but today... I'm showing up, and I'm saying that I am the fulfillment of these things. This jubilee has come. The year of jubilee, the year of celebration, the time of the good news to the poor has come because of me. Today it has come. And then in verse 22, moving on, he says, or the text says here in Luke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not... Joseph's son. And then skipping ahead to verse uh, 31. I don't know if that's going to be on screen or not. 31 through 35. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had suffered, or a man, a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, shut up, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So Jesus says, I'm I'm here, it's the year of Jubilee, 
where the blind will see, the prisoners will be set free. And then immediately there's a man who's a prisoner, who's a prisoner. He's a spiritual prisoner because of a demon. And Jesus sets him free, tells the demon, shut up, get out. Immediately, Jesus begins to fulfill what he said he's there to fulfill. Verse 36, and they were amazed and they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So word begins to spread. We saw this guy cast out a demon. And then verse 38, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. This guy just cast out a demon. Maybe he can do something about this sickness. I mean, he just said that he was here and he could do these things. And so in verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. Word begins to spread like crazy. Here's a guy that can touch people and heal them. In verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any, all, all, who had, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, meaning, in other words, he's healing people all night long. Word has spread like wildfire. Here's a guy who's actually the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. He can, he can heal us. The healer is here. The year of Jubilee is here. So all night long, he's healing people. Because in verse 42, it says, And when it was day, the sun has come up. He's been healing all night. He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people follow him. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, this good news to the poor, to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And this is how Jesus launches his ministry. This is his inaugural moment. Before he ever picks any of his disciples, he spends it, spending the night with sick people and poor people and demon-possessed people, people that have been ravaged by the effects of sin and the curse. And this has to be a primary lens for us in the way in which we view the gospel. Not just the poor, but in how we view Jesus and his gospel. This lens of how he, he treats and looks at the poor has to be a primary lens for us. Um, otherwise, it leads us to all kinds of skewed ways of treating each other and the world around us. It needs to be a primary lens. I grew up in Chile, South America, in the city of Santiago. It's a mega metropolis of 7 million people. And uh, my parents moved there when I was in the fifth grade uh, to be missionaries. And the city of Santiago is like any other major city um, it has areas of it that are very, very wealthy, and it's got areas that are very, very, very poor. And to my dismay as a kid, I can even remember thinking like, oh, it would be so cool to go to the, the dope areas of town. But no, my parents chose to go to the most impoverished neighborhoods. And they said, we're going to go to the most impoverished neighborhood, and we're going to plant a church uh, with the poor. 
And, and as a result, uh, I got to see poverty that is like seared into my memory. Poverty that is, that is indescribable. I can remember um, one of the first times I got shook. It was when we'd been there for just a, a couple of weeks. And again, I'm like this fifth grade kid. And, uh, and so we're in this car and we drive to this poor downtown spot. And my dad is scoping out this building that could become the future location of the church. And it did become the future location of our church. And it was this little like storefront, basically, like this in this impoverished area, this little tiny storefront. And it's like, hey, here a fledgling group could probably meet here in this storefront. And so we drive down and it's 7 p.m. at night, so it's dark. And it's raining like crazy. And chilly, uh, it, it, there's the Andes Mountains and it snows a bunch in the Andes Mountains. But down into the, in the city, it just rains. It's kind of like California weather. So it's just dumping rain, dumping rain. Uh, some places of the city would actually flood because it would, we would get so much rain. And so we're in this location. It's just raining. It's dark. It's cold. And I'm in the back seat. And my dad steps out of the car. And he's going to go check out this, this location to see if it's a good fit for, our, for starting a church there. And I'm just sitting in the car. Um, and right alongside the curb, and I'm looking out my window right outside, just a couple of feet away from me, and there's just this mound of, of trash bags. There's probably like 20, 25 just black trash bags just piled up on this uh, city corner. Um, I don't know why, uh, but that's, they were there. And, uh, and so I'm just kind of bored sitting in the back, minding my own business, and I'm kind of looking out, lost in thought. And suddenly, I realize that right on the other side of the glass of, my, of the car, in this pile of trash bags, I can see a face looking back at me. And I'm like, whoa. And I realize it's a boy, my age, sitting in this trash. Clothes, like ragged clothes, ragged shoes. Like a boy, a boy, not an adult, a boy sitting in this trash. And he's got the trash bags like piled up around him, like, the, like it's insulation against the cold and against, against the rain. I can remember that like it's yesterday. On another occasion, you know, we talk about the, we've talked about the widow's might before. When Jesus says, hey, watch to his disciples, watch this widow. And she comes into the synagogue and she gives her last penny. I've seen that with my own eyes. I've been in a church where the Chilean pastor said, watch this woman. And she walks in and it's this widow woman very elderly, broke as can be, and she's only got a few pesos, and she gives everything she's got every Sunday to, to, to God. I've seen that. I've, I've been in a home where the, the footprint of the home was the size of this stage, and the floor is, is bare. It's, it's earth. It's ground, and the roof is like tin, and, the, and I'm sitting in, the, in a chair eating. This family invited me over, invited us over. We're eating food with dirt floors, and they're cooking it outside on an open fire. I can remember that. And then I have all of these memories here of God's people, God's poor people, and I can also have this memory of what Americans, American Christians, would say and do when they came to visit or when they would write us. And in particular, I can remember my dad receiving an email from an American pastor. And my dad was very frustrated with this email. 
And the email basically was this American pastor who had written to my dad, and he wanted to make sure that since they were so generously supporting us in this ministry with the poor, they wanted to make sure that in our church services that we were reading their preferred version of the Bible and that the men in our church were wearing ties. What a load of crap. Privilege has afforded us this strange place where we can feel good about ourselves and our relationship with God and be absolutely blind to what God is doing and where he's doing it. I hope that God is with us in our wealth and our naivety, our preferred arbitrary translations and Sunday attire. I hope that God is with us in that, and I think he is. But I know that God is with little boys in trash bags. I know that God is with the widows giving the last that they have. I know that God is with the families that have dirt floors in their home. Remember I said this, I told us to talk about that word justice, injustice. That's the word that was used in Isaiah, this, this idea of justice. See, this isn't about charity. The year of Jubilee isn't about charity. And that's too bad because we're really good at charity, aren't we? Charity, it can make us kind of feel something, and then we can maybe even write a check and be, be generous. We're good at that. But mercy, according to Isaiah, isn't about charity. It's about justice. It's about justice. Justice is saying, this is not right. It is not how it should be. This is not how God designed things to be. Right? That's what justice is. And that is, that is, that sense of justice is how we look at poverty. It's not just char- like us engaging in charity cases. This is about justice. Like when the final day comes and Jesus comes to set everything right and he does away with pain and suffering and tears and sin, there's also going to be no more poverty. Like he's getting rid of that. It's not as he designed. So this is not about charity our treatment of the poor. This is about justice, God's design. And so we can dispense with the trash rhetoric that we comfort ourselves with, that I've deserved, I deserve this because of what I've done, and you know what? That case over there deserves what they've got. We can dispense with that because Jesus says, cool, that's not how I designed it to be. I want it to be one way this way, so give it away. But we, I, I don't know about you, but I get so fixated then on trying to justify myself. And I'm always asking, Lord, who is my neighbor? <laughs> right? Like they ask Jesus. I mean, okay, Jesus, yeah, we're supposed to be generous and all to our neighbor, but God, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And, you know, Jesus tells a parable, and we, won't ha- we don't have time to get into that. But when I think about this concept of how I justify myself, ah, do I, I'm supposed to take care of my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? 40 million Americans struggle with actual hunger on a daily basis, and 13 million of those are children. 13 million children in America right now are hungry. They don't have enough food to eat. They're malnourished. Are children my neighbor? 
Our sermon series graphic, can we get that on the screen, Kyle, the sermon series graphic? This right here, this is the, so the graphic that we had originally had like, there's text behind it. This is the picture we took. This, this isn't some like abstract place in Chile or South America or someplace like that. This is five miles, this is five minutes drive away from here. This is Middletown, Ohio, this picture. This is where somebody lives in Middletown, Ohio. This is our neighbor. Most of you probably live closer to this individual than you live to me. I live in Madison Township now. Most of you, live, most of you are more neighbors to this person physically than you are even to me. You know, what makes justice so hard, thanks for putting that up on screen. What makes justice so hard is that it requires contact. It requires us to shake hands, to be present. It requires us to get uncomfortable. Charity, charity can afford us a, a little bit of insulation from, from everything. But true justice for the, poor, for the poor requires us to do more than just give. It requires us to be present, to show up. Uh, that's what I love about Care Portal. We've talked about Care Portal, and maybe some of you know what that is or what it isn't. But um, what we're doing is we're rolling out a system in all of our community groups, church-wide, and Care Portal is an opportunity for those who are care workers in, in this, um, caseworkers in the city or in the, here in the city that have eyes on the children that are coming into the schools to say, hey, we, we've got a child that's in great need. We've got this family that's in great need. Those needs are filtered. And, and we get them as a church, and then we are going to be fulfilling those needs as community groups. Um, it's not something that we want to silo off to one little mercy ministry in our church where the people that have a heart for it can go, and the rest of us can be charitable and write our checks. No, it's something that we're going to step into as a church family. We're going to get our hands dirty with this. And when they say, like, why are you doing this? Thank you so much. We can then say this is because of God's love for us that has now overflowed towards all of you. We have been recipients of his grace, so you are a recipient of ours. Jubilee has come. Here's a couple of applications to take away. We've just obviously been talking about this, but God has a heart for the poor and actively steps into their suffering. That's the first application, and we'll talk about that. But then secondly, God wants us to have a heart for, a poor, for the poor and to actively step into their suffering. So the first one, God has a heart for the poor, for those who suffer, and actively steps into their suffering. So what does that look like? I think a lot of times, like, the way in which we, like, help is really not that helpful. Like, you know, like, Try a little bit harder and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and have a better attitude, you know, kind of karma. Like if you think about positive things, like positive things will happen to you. Uh, that's actually not really that helpful. If like, you've ever been in a place of suffering, in a place of tragedy, it's not really that helpful for people to tell you like, well, just try to cheer up, right? That doesn't, that doesn't help you. That's, that's not helpful. Or worse, like someone trying to give you some like advice after 10 seconds of you sharing your story, they want to give you advice as though it's something that you haven't already thought of and considered. Right? That's, not, that's not the first way we step into or God steps into uh, our poverty. That's not how Jesus did it. Um, Jesus shows up and he essentially expresses this, I love you, I'm here. I love you and I'm here. 
I love you and I'm here. And he says that explicitly in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you because you are more precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. He says that multiple times. I love you. I'm with you. I love you. I'm with you. And Jesus is this incarnational embodiment of that love and presence, and he steps into the poverty and our mess and gets his hands dirty. The approach of charity says, let me do something, write the check or give or something like that so that I can alleviate some of the guilt that I feel inside of me. But justice says, this is the way that it should be, and I'm here, this is an expression of my love and desire to be present with you. The right way, the right way to respond is to love you and be present with you. That's the first thing that we have to understand, that God's heart for the poor and needy leads him to say, I love you, I'm stepping into the mess, I'm here with you. And here's the other thing, you are poor. Everyone that walked in here today, whether you realized it or not, you might not be financially poor, but everyone in here without Christ has a spiritual debt. Or as Pastor Tim Keller says, uh, an offense against an infinite God racks up an infinite debt. And Christ has paid that debt of us at great, great cost and sacrifice to himself. And if you don't have a heart for the poor, like if you're here today and you're like, this isn't connecting, I don't really have a heart for the poor, I'd ask you to examine like this perspective. If, you're like a, if you say you're a Christian, but you don't have a heart for the poor, that's kind of like a weird place to be in, right? Like, poor, like the poor, eh, not really my problem. And then I'll show up to church and be like, oh, praise the one who paid my debts, right? Like that's weird, right? Isn't that like, that's, it lacks a little bit of self-awareness, Right? Like, let's extend what Christ has done for us to the actual poor, right? Um, and I hear devil's advocates say, you know, I hear, I'm, I'm trying to hear the devil's advocates here. We're, we're, well, you know what, though? Yes, there are the legitimate poor, but sometimes there's poor people who have just gotten there because they've made a lot of bad decisions. I'm like, that is a terrible argument. As though you got spiritually poor by making good decisions? No. How did, you, how did all of us end up being spiritually poor? A lot of bad decisions. That's why we're all spiritually bankrupt and need Christ, because of a lot of bad decisions. Let's pay attention to the heart of God as people who should be very aware of our own poverty and what Christ has done in us. God wants us to have a heart. That's the second point. God wants us to have a heart for the poor and those who suffer. And his blessings, hear this, his blessings to us, because God has blessed most of us in this room. God has richly blessed financially most of us in this room. And those blessings are opportunities to see our hearts changed in his likeness as we hold what God has given us with open hands. Um, C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. It is like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, 
give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. Sixpence the richer, none the richer, right? Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving, your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. And if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. That's C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. So this then begs the question, if all of this is God's gifts, why would the father give the sixpence to begin with? Why would the father give his child the sixpence to buy himself a birthday present to begin with? Why wouldn't the father just sit down this ignorant child and say, look, if I really wanted this silly little gift that you want to buy for me, I, you're asking me for the money, right? Like, I could go buy this for myself if I really wanted it. If I really wanted this, why would I give you the money? Like, the father could have had that conversation with the son. Like, I'm not, no, I'm not going to give you this sixpence because if I really, what, like, what you're going to give me, I could have if I wanted it. But why does he give the son, the sixpence. I think it has less to do with the gift and more about what the father wants to see his son fashioned into. I'm going to give, it, give you this illustration as we close. I have two boys in elementary. Hopefully I can get through the illustration. Um, this year they asked for money because there was a store at school that was a Santa shop. And uh, they wanted money to buy gifts. And so uh, there was an envelope that came home from school. And it said, you can put the money, you can put cash money here in this envelope. And you can specify on the envelope the names and the amount of money that your child is permitted to spend on each family member. And I got this idea of like, I'm going to conduct this experiment. I'm going to be radically generous to my boys, like give them a ridiculous sum of money. Um, and then I'm going to specify on the envelope that they can spend the money however they want to spend it, even if they want to spend every last penny on themselves. And so what did they do? Did they buy themselves anything? They did. They did. They did buy themselves a gift. But they each spent the overwhelming amount of money on gifts for the rest of our family. Now, who bought my gift? Who bought the gifts? I did. Do you think I care? Was it not a gift to me? What was the gift? What was it that I really wanted from my boys? It was for them to be fashioned in an image of generosity. That's what I really wanted. That's what I really wanted. And so as God dispensed gifts to us, isn't that like what God wants from us? Right? Isn't that why he's blessing us? to see uh, these are op the, the gifts that we have are opportunities for us to be fashioned into his generous image. We are uh, entering into our time of communion where we see what it cost Jesus to 
bless us, to, to, um, to reconcile us to God in a way that we did not deserve. In our spiritual poverty, we made a lot of really bad choices that deserved us, our, our, our spot separated from God. And what Christ has done is he's come, he's poured himself out for us. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood spilled out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take this today, this is a reminder of the radical generosity that Jesus has given to all of us as spiritually impoverished individuals, that he has paid our infinite debt. This is what Jesus has done for us. He gave us more than cash. He gave us, gave us his own flesh and blood and life. And then as a result of this gift of grace to us, our grace should overflow as we look at the poor and how we treat the poor. Uh, in a moment, so the band is going to come up. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with how we do communion, uh, when the band plays, then you'll be invited to come forward. There'll be two stations on either side of the stage, and you can take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice as your conscience permits. And this is an open invitation to anyone who uh, is, a, is a Christian who proclaims Christ. You don't have to be a member here of, of, of the church. You just have to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for sending your son, for being so generous to us. God, throughout all of the scriptures, we see your justice intertwined with your generosity towards us. And I thank you for that. And um, I thank you that Jesus has come and done our justice and set us right with God the Father in a very generous way. Father, as we come forward this morning, I pray that we're not like the people that fast and participate in your sacraments in an external way, but I pray that truly this message of generosity, this gospel generosity, this good news to the poor would penetrate our hearts in the way in which we think and feel about ourselves, think and feel about you, God, and think and feel about the poor in our uh, community. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen.